1: Hey, everybody. Welcome. Um, look, I have done a series with PETA. I want you to know who PETA is. Um, when You have this organization come to the forefront to bring a message. There is something in it that is an action for all of us. And today's show is even more important than you can imagine. And if you're wondering about PETA, you just go to PETA, P-E-T-A dot org. Just go over, take a look. And, And what you're going to find are people dedicated to helping us understand and take action against abuse. Abuse for animals, abuse for what is completely unnecessary, and compassion is what we need to be looking at. But compassion without action doesn't save, doesn't save these beings. Today, I'm talking with somebody that is so passionate, Dr. Emily Trono, She's joining me here today, neuroscientist and research associate for PETA. But here's what I want to say. When humans hear the word sepsis, when you hear that word for a family member, you completely understand what is happening with them. You know the pain they're going through. You know, you've seen this in, top television shows about what happens, but yet you're completely unaware that your taxpayer dollars are being wasted on inhuman sepsis experiments on animals. You don't know that, but hopefully after today, you're going to be thinking, nope, we can't have this. Today, joining me, Dr. Emily is going to share a personal experience, but even more importantly, you should know what sepsis is and why this is so cruel. Dr. Emily, thank you for joining me here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Um, when human beings are uh hear the word sepsis and when, when they hear that in their own diagnosis, it, it, the, just the, the just the word itself brings people to their knees. But here we are, and we're talking about experimentation and we're talking about creating something in the body of healthy animals that is beyond inhumane. It is unethical and it is absolutely cruel. Tell us about this, and tell us what's going on here, and why you are involved in it.
2: Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, sepsis is. You're right. It's you hear that, and it it just seems like something you know that's the most horrible thing that you can think of, and it is a is a terrible painful condition. Um, It affects 1.7 million American adults each year and kills almost 300,000 people a year in the U.S. Um, So what sepsis is, is it's the body's overreaction to an infection. And this can be you know, an infection that occurs when you have an injury, uh, when you, if you've gotten surgery, sometimes the f- infections can occur, or even from other illnesses like pneumonia or kidney disease. Um, but so, when you have these infections, the body, you know, releases chemicals to try to fight them. But in sepsis, that whole system gets overblown, and you get inflammation throughout the body. Um, it can quickly cause tissue damage and organ failure, and even death. Um, so it's it's a really important condition that we need to study. But despite decades and decades of research, there have been no new cures or treatments for sepsis. Physicians are using the same things that they have been using for decades to treat sepsis and, and nothing more effective um, has come to light. Um, a major reason for this is because the NIH and other federal agencies continue to funnel billions of dollars uh, into these horrific sepsis experiments on animals mm-hmm. a, instead of using human relevant methods.
1: Um Let's talk about alternatives because, you know, whenever I do a show like this, Dr. Emily, what happens is I get emails from people because we need to talk about what the alternative is and, you know, to be able to stop this. We have so many modernized research um, abilities now. We have learned so much about what we could learn about the body. And yet we still resort to this absolutely cruel and abuse to animals. So I would love to know from your perspective, you know, you're a neuroscientist, you're somebody also that is compassionate about this. What are the alternatives to this? Tell us what we don't know.
2: Physicians have really been on the forefront of saying that sepsis needs to be studied uh, using human biology as Mm. the gold standard. Um, So there are lots of methods that, that we can do that with. Um, and some of those are, you know, in vitro experiments, like you would think of in a petri dish. Um, but they you can actually collect cells directly from a human patient, you know, non-invasively, just like a skin scraping, uh, and use those skin cells to study that patient's biology and how they might respond to treatments. Um, you can also use sophisticated analysis of the wealth of human genome data that we now have. Um, mathematical and computer modeling of human biology um, donated human tissue um, and other sophisticated in vitro methods that are, are, you know, are based in the biology of humans and not in the biology of mice.
1: When I think about this, it, it's, it's kind to bring tears to your eyes. I mean, you know, let's just understand this for a minute. It's got to bring tears to your eyes, but let's talk about what the, what, what the animal goes through. I mean, because it, it it's, we've we've got to just tell people that we're not just here speaking about something and just using language like abuse there are things that when you when you create sepsis in anyone but when you create sepsis in in, in an animal being an animal friend of ours they go through things can you tell people what they're doing here please don't hold uh, back Okay. I never
2: know how much to say. No, you you need to to be be on
1: my show. You need to be direct. And we need to really paint a picture of this for people.
2: You're right. I mean, I, I've, and in my line of duty, line of work at PETA, um, I, you know, I look at a lot of animal experiments and a lot of them are horrific, but sepsis really stands out. Yep. Um, you know, these experiments, you, the experimenters will cut open a mouse's abdomen, take out their intestines and punch a hole in them with a needle and then sew them back up into the mouse's body. And so the bacteria leaks out and causes the systemic reaction Um, They inject deadly toxins directly into animals and I've even been experiments where they have sewn two animals together so that they share a bloodstream. Um, and they try to you know treat one animal and see if it, if it, will, it will affect the other one. I mean it, it's stuff and these, you're right these are otherwise healthy animals that they're inflicting all of this on and it's something that you would expect to see more in a horror movie than in a you know a biomedical lab. And uh,
1: and and you know what happens is it's like carte blanche. You know I hate that term but I got to use it. Because it's almost as if nobody's watching us, and why do you care anyway? And I think it doesn't stop here. You know, we are seeing, and, you know, by you all coming on, we're seeing across the board, you know, this, how should I call it, experimentation without control mechanisms. You know, there are no control mechanisms. It's like, yeah, let's just do it and research it and call it good for medicine, you know, what can be done? How can listeners find out more? And, you know, from your perspective, are animals even the right model to use? I mean, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. You know, what do we get from experimentation on animals? Um, well, in
2: sepsis particularly, but in so many areas, we've gotten absolutely nothing. And you're right, there are not checks and balances in the system. You know, it's fueled by money, it's fueled by habit, Um and there was a study in 2013 that was, you know, 10 years of research, almost 40 researchers from respected institutions around the world found that mice use completely different genes to respond to sepsis than humans. And this is critically important when we're trying to develop, you know, sophisticated medicines to treat sepsis. That, the fact that it's a completely different condition in mice and 150 drugs developed in mice that treated sepsis and mice, all failed in humans, 150 drugs. And that was, you know, eight years ago. And it's, it's, it's more by this point. So other animals are, are not the right models to be studying what is, a, what is a very specific disease in humans and even in each human patient.
1: Um, I know these are short interviews and I can only thank you for bringing the you know, the word and bringing information to the forefront. But I also want to thank PETA and for people out there, you know, we're talking about people for the ethical treatment of animals. Let me say it again, people for the ethical treatment of animals. That's PETA, P-E-T-A. And if you go to the website, PETA, P-E-T-A.org, not only will you find more information regarding what Dr. Emily is talking about, but you will find information here to become more aware. And, you know, what I love about this is we're watching the young people. We're watching people become so aware and then making the rest of us become more aware. Um, Animals are not ours to abuse. That's not it. That's not what they're here for. And certainly they're not here for us to experiment on. Emily, last question. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? And again, thank you for everything you're doing.
2: Thank you so much. And I just, as a scientist and a a person who cares deeply about humans and animals, um, this area, this area of animal experimentation is really a win win for both causes because shifting to human relevant methods not only saves the lives of billions of animals every year, but is getting, will get treatment to humans. more quickly and more efficiently and so it's it's just it's, it's something that really can't be argued
1: thank you so much for everything thank you for what you're doing and thank you for how you're doing it please keep up the good work thank you so much um, everyone please again PETA.org I'm Dr. Pat let's take a short break we'll be right back
0: not just talk conversation for profound self-awareness stick with us your best life awaits on transformationtalkradio.com talk
2: Radio.com.
1: Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome to our Good News segment. Oh, look, this is a time where we get to laugh a little bit, because I think you all know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, when I'm thinking about a book, and I'm thinking about what's going to make me laugh, but I know, I watch it, I'm seeing the blunders, I'm seeing the things happen in terms of ideas that are out in the world. And you ask yourself the question, what? What was that idea? what is the idea behind the idea? Well, I'm not going to answer that question because I've got the author, Michael Smith, I've got the author of a 100 of the worst ideas in history. Uh, Michael Smith and Eric Kassam wrote this book. And how does humanity survive the thundering, ridiculous aspects of some of the things we do? I mean, how do we even make it through it. You know, is it really just pure luck? My dad used to say that's just dumb luck. Or are there facts that we should know about? Let's talk to Michael about this. Hey, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, good to be here, Dr. Pan. Always a pleasure.
1: So, you know, let's talk about some of these because, you know, as people, we see these ideas come to the forefront. And I could talk about great ideas that never made it forward. And the worst idea that I could think about had to do with my telephone experience. The worst idea goes so far back. It would have changed the landscape of of the history of of the phone company and the phone company, AT&T. But let's talk about some of these worst ideas, because I I think I may have been part of some of these.
0: Oh, no, really? What was it? You were part of the 100 worst ideas in history?
1: I think some of these, I look at some of these and I'm thinking, oh, my God, did I buy into that? Did I actually believe that? Because we believe some of the things we're told. Tell me what the backstory is for you in saying, "Look, I got to talk about some of these worst ideas in history, some of the blunders." Well,
0: it's uh, you know, my my partner Eric Cassim uh, and I uh, are both, not surprisingly, writers. I run my own. Uh, video advertising agency. And Eric is a former speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush, Mm -hmm. He's written for the uh, LA Times, New York Times, CBS News. So we kick around ideas all day long, and we have a great appreciation for what it takes to come up with a good idea. And a lot of empathy when a seemingly good idea goes terribly wrong, because God knows we've done that ourselves. Yeah. So we went through uh, our own personal Rolodex of bad ideas. we took about three years of research, and we kind of boiled it down to what Eric likes to call the creme de la creme of colossally bad
1: thinking. And I got to tell you, there are some in here that are obvious, and then there are others that just absolutely we know about, but sure. um, yeah. we don't really talk about them. Do you have a favorite? Can I can I ask you, I have a couple in here that are my favorite, and sure. I definitely was part of the Corvair thing.
0: Oh, God. That bad Corvair, idea. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's that's an interesting one. We'll we'll come back to that in a second, <laughs> okay. if it's okay. Yeah, let's uh, get yours. I really like uh, the skinny dipping president, uh, <sighs> and this goes this goes back uh, a few years, let's say, and uh, it gives uh, "crack of dawn" a whole new meaning, shall we say? Because every morning, President John Quincy Adams sneaks down to the Potomac, undresses. And proceeds to skinny dip with the ducks and geese, all the while, as we say, naked as a Jaybird.
1: Oh, wow. So there's
0: a newspaper reporter named Anne Royal. And she hears about it and hides out in the Potomac's foliage and catches the, uh, the unsuspecting president in the buff. <laughs> so she, she takes his clothes and holds them ransom. until so he agrees to give her a long-awaited interview he's, he's put off. So he gets his clothes back. She gets the interview. Uh, And she doesn't mention his, shall we say, ballsy morning escapades. Uh, But soon word gets out, as it always does in Washington. And now Adams is swimming, as we say, in a pool of national ridicule and shame. And as a result, uh, the Adams administration's policy agenda stalls, and he's soundly defeated for re-election in 1828 by Andrew Jackson. And in the end, the the electorate considered Adams' sagging credibility and saggy backside and concluded... The president has no clothes. I
1: mean, <laughs> pretty, you know, these are wild. some of the things, and you have to wonder, you know, what's what's behind the idea. As I'm reading your book, I'm thinking to myself, what's behind the idea? And some of it I understand. You know, for example, the the bad idea to protect the privacy of suspicious foreign operatives. You know that sure. one there. Um, you know, mm-hmm. surrounding you know nine eleven clearly some political aspect of it. But it's really hard to understand the Titanic, isn't it?
0: Oh, the Titanic is, is an interesting one. I can tell you uh, about that. And it's, it's actually a number of bad ideas that have kind of come together to form one gigantic uh, bad idea. And uh, obviously this goes back to uh, April 14th of 1912 and the, the RMS Titanic it's, is the, uh, it's the fastest and biggest ship on Earth. And it's carrying at this time some of the richest people on Earth. And as we all know, it rams an iceberg at full speed and plunges into the icy depths of the North Atlantic, and more than 1,700 people die within minutes. Now, it's it's a disaster that, as we say in the book, has become iconic. But its story is really, uh, to coin a phrase here, ironic, (laughs) because it's the story, as I say, of one bad idea leading to another and another and another and another. So let me just run through them real quick. Here. Sure. I mean, a lot of people don't know all of these. There's five bad ideas that came, came together to, to, to bring this about. So the first bad idea is that the steel used in the construction of the Titanic is, is not really optimal. It contains a high amount of sulfur. And as a result, in the frigid waters of, of April in, in the North Atlantic, the ship's hull becomes increasingly brittle. And all the more uh, vulnerable to perforation by a sharp foreign object, like an iceberg. So it's the construction of the seal that was the first bad idea. The second bad idea is a design defect. Sir Thomas Andrews is the ship's designer and architect, and he does not specify that roofs be placed on the, in quotes, watertight compartments. So as each compartment fills after iceberg impact, water flows over the tops of the walls, flooding the next compartments and the next and the next. And that basically doomed the ship. So roofs could have restrained the flooding water and might have saved the Titanic. Idea three, they had lookouts, uh, guys up in the crow's nest without binoculars. So on the night of the disaster, there's two lookouts named Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee, who, as I say, are high up in the crow's nest, and they're squinting into the darkness in a fruitless attempt to spot icebergs. And why are they squinting? Because someone borrowed their binoculars and did not give them back. So by the time they spot danger and scream, iceberg right ahead, it's already too late. Wow. Bad idea number four. We call this one hard a starboard. So the moment Fleet and Lee, the two lookouts, spot the iceberg, first officer named William Murdoch makes bad idea number four happen. He gives the order to turn the ship hard a starboard in an effort to avoid the iceberg, to to turn away from it. And this causes the mountain of ice to scrape along the entire side of the ship's hull, flooding the first five compartments. And as we already heard, they don't have any roofs in addition to that. So if Murdoch had simply kept the ship on a straight course, Titanic would have hit the iceberg head on, crushing maybe only the first two of its compartments. Uh, And this would have crippled the ship, of course, but experts say that uh, Titanic would have survived. Mm -hmm. The impact with virtually no loss of life. Final bad idea a uh, few lifeboats. I think we know this one. Yeah. People don't uh, know that, bit- though. You know, this is oh, why okay. I like
1: your book because I really <laughs> like your book because, do you know, people don't know that. They don't know. Oh, I thought everybody the back- knew
0: that. The, I thought the, everybody knew the Titanic did not have enough lifeboats. Well, thanks to the movie,
1: enough. they sort of got the hint of it, but they don't really understand the magnitude of not having enough boats. And what they a, so, a
0: blunder. They were so cocky, Dr. Pat, when they designed this darn thing. It was unsinkable. You know, we hear about the, uh, was it the unsinkable Molly Malone uh, yeah. character? Um, this, they thought the boat was unsinkable. So it only had enough lifeboats for half of the people on board. So, as I said, over 1,700 people perished, including Captain Edward Smith, no relation to me, thank God, and ship architect, uh, Andrews, and all the, both of the lookouts uh, died. Uh, Murdoch also lost his life, but Bruce is the owner of the uh, unsinkable Titanic somehow managed to climb into a lifeboat and save himself. So uh, a completely avoidable uh, incident that uh, involved 1,700 people dying uh, under very, very difficult
1: conditions. Now, I have a modern-day blunder that I'll talk about at the end of this interview, and it's right in the headlines today. And okay. I think it's a modern day blunder. And I think we're going to mm-hmm. get more and more of these. But outside oh, of the boy. Titanic, you have yeah. some of them. I mean, some of the funniest things. Let me ask you this. I was struck by some of the Hollywood blunders, if I could have yeah. you comment. One,
0: oh, yeah. There's w- a lot of them.
1: Right. Tell us about the blunder of Nick Nolte. You know, that blunder of him not taking that role. Uh, Holy cow, Nick.
0: Well, Nick, Nick Nolte uh, decided to turn down the now legendary movie role of Indiana Jones, if you can even begin to imagine that. So this is uh, 1980. And uh, he's he just simply refuses to, as we say, don the fedora and crack the bull with. <laughs> and he declines the... Uh, He declines the choice role of Indiana Jones in Lucas and Spielberg's modern classic Raiders of the Lost Ark with a hearty thank you from Harrison Ford. So instead of assuming the the mantle of the two-fisted Nazi fighting professor, uh, Nolte uh, decides instead to star in the long-since-forgotten movie Heartbeat. I don't think anybody even remembers that one. Nope. Uh, (laughs) Now, ironically, just three years earlier, Nolte had already lost the iconic role of Han Solo in Lucas's Star Wars, A New Hope,
1: oh my to the
0: aforementioned Harrison Ford. And it's the same Harrison Ford who goes on to make a total of four highly successful Indiana Jones-related uh, films over the next three decades. And all told, the quartet of indie movies earns over $1.9 billion worldwide and makes Ford one of the three most successful actors in box office history. Uh, And a little cherry on top of that cupcake for Nick Nolte was he was also director Richard Donner, who just unfortunately passed away recently. Uh, He was his first choice to play the Man of Steel, Superman, in the (sighs) 1978 movie Superman. But unless he's bypassed under pressure uh, uh, from the studios to cast a beefier, more handsome actor. And he's bypassed in favor of the relatively unknown Christopher Reeve, who, as we say in the book, quickly catapults to fame and fortune faster than a speeding bullet. So uh, Nolte had some ups and some downs. He's uh, an interesting character. I know some people, because I'm south of Hollywood, yeah. I've done a lot of work up in Hollywood. Um, he's, a, he's a little bit all over the place. Let's yeah. put it that way. You're, 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 a, you're into the psychology thing. I, I don't know <laughs> what it is about some actors where they, uh, at times, are self-destructive and yeah. maybe they think they don't deserve the success, but I'll tell you this: in the 1980s, between Nicolas Cage and Nick Nolte, those to me were the two best character actors out there. And you could argue that really both of them uh, kind of self-destructed over time.
1: Yeah, what I love about Nicolas Cage is that he uh, he he's like the Energizer Bunny. I think he just keeps ticking. And what I mean by that is, you know, all all of these uh, what do we call Hollywood calls them B type movies. He's in a million of them. So for whatever reason, he is out there just chugging along. You know, every time you turn around, right? (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) I can tell you what the reason is. All right, tell me. Because that's that's one of the stories in the book too. Uh, And what we had, the title of this story is uh, uh, Dinosaur Helps Bring, (laughs) let let me just find it real quick here. Uh, Dinosaur Helps Bring uh, Actors' Finances to the Brink of extinction, and this goes back. Nicholas Cage it goes back to 2007, and here, here he is the the king of spend trips. uh He's he's by this time in 2007. He's bought a jet, two yachts, three castles, oh, two Bahamian yeah. islands, a gaggle of mansions, fifty cars, including the Shah of Iran's 495 thousand dollar Lamborghini, and a comic book collection worth 1.6 million dollars. But what he decides, uh, Doctor Pat, at this point, that he really needs above all other worldly possessions is a 67 million year old dinosaur skull. So wow. the, as we say in the book, the raising Arizona star. One of my oh my gosh! Movies, uh, raises the uh, auction ante and outbids fellow thespian uh, Leonardo DiCaprio to snare this prehistoric relic for two hundred and seventy-six thousand dollars, and we say. That's a bonehead move, right? Uh, but, but really, <laughs> the, the dino dung hits the fan when it's realized that Cage already owes the government over $6 million in back taxes. Oh, my God. And his weird uh, pirouette, as we say into paleontology, uh, has helped incur the wrath and the notice of the IRS. So as the taxman closes in on Cage, the actor uh, reverses course in turning his years-long uh, buying spree into a bargain basement sell-off. And he lists his Bel Air mansion for tens of millions of dollars less than its original price. He then uh, loses hundreds of thousands of dollars on the sale of the three castles, one of which he only spent one night in. Mm -hmm. And uh, also his beloved Superman uh, comic book uh, uh, collection goes up for sale. Oh, my gosh. So (laughs) what happens at the end of it all is uh, he still earns a cool $40 million a year. And he hired a new business manager in 2008. And with a, with a nod to his alcohol-addled Oscar-nominated role in Leaving Las Vegas, <laughs> he reportedly pledges he pledges to take a more sober approach to spending.
1: Oh, my God. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I want to go through a couple of these with you, because first of all, I love the way you divide the book. And But before we do, let's tell folks how they can get their copy of the book, if you would, please. Sure, because sure. this this is really the coolest thing to really, I could see sitting around and having a conversation <laughs> about some of these and then asking your friends, you know, what are some of the blunders that you've seen in your life? But how do people get a copy of the book? And then I want to talk well, about the, a couple that you have in the book where sure. you start to talk about, you know, beyond uh, war strategies that bombed. I want to talk about a couple of these because some of them are so obvious. You have to ask yourself, why? would they do that why right they do
0: it why would they do it sure you know you know it's what were they thinking is what were the they thinking underlying uh, theme of the book um it, it's it's insane but you can get the book the printed book is done well it's it's available still on uh amazon uh as all books are it's, it's the law you know you, must, if you have a book it has to be on amazon apparently uh, it's also available at barnes and noble and uh, find retailers everywhere. The audiobook, which is new, it's only been out about a month and a half, uh, is available on audible.com, or, again, Amazon, iTunes, and at 100worstideas.com. Uh,
1: awesome. Okay, let's talk about one or two, or let's just do one of these, because there's a couple of others in here I just want to talk to you about. There's so many in the book for people to enjoy oh, on their own. But some of the war blunders, I mean... Gosh, are you still scratching your head?
0: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, do you have one in particular you'd like to uh, talk about?
1: Well, I have a couple. I, uh, you know, I, I think the thing I never understood was Napoleon. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I said, do you know how close that part of the world came to being one country? And, and I think oh, about sure. this. And, and then, you know, I think about the fact that one bad idea stops somebody like a Napoleon or even even an Adolf Hitler. I mean, the, the double cross that you put in the book of Adolf Hitler. But I also think about, you know, how some of these decisions were made, right? Mm. You know, some of the strategies yeah. – Right. Like the bad idea, fight to the death. Um, Sure. I have a friend that talks about Japan and, you know, the the bombing of Pearl Harbor was an atrocity. But the only reason that Hawaii was not completely taken over and some some, you know, Japanese folks were looking at that and saying is because they didn't do the third wave. But what are some of your favorite bad ideas?
0: Well, I'll tell you, uh, in terms of, uh, of war, uh, you know, in the category of war strategies that are the, that bombs, I really like the double agent who double crosses yeah. the Führer. Yeah, that's a good one. I did not. Frankly, I, I feel dumb, but I didn't know anything about this before we did our research. But it's a really interesting take on the psychology of Adolf Hitler, really, when it comes down to it and how it was played upon very intelligently by the intelligence services of both uh, Britain and, uh, and America. So anyway, it's uh, late in World War II and uh, the German military intelligence learns that an allied invasion of Europe is imminent. Mm. And Hitler is, is desperate to know where the attack is going to be, obviously. So he turns to his most trusted intelligence advisor. It's a guy named Juan Pujol García. But there's a problem, as we say, with good Juan. He's actually a double agent working for the British, codenamed Garbo. So, and he's quite the convincing actor. And I think that's why they gave him uh, the name of of an actress at that time. (laughs) But actually, uh, so what happens is Garbo advises Hitler that American General George Patton will lead the upcoming assault and that his forces will storm the beaches at Calais, France. Now, anybody who knows their history knows. That didn't happen. Uh, Hitler takes Garbo's advice and directs his generals to defend the shores of Calais. Well, following Garbo's advice is not a good idea. On June 6, 1944, the real Allied beachhead assault begins miles away in Normandy. And even as that's happening, Hitler is still trusting Garbo's opinion. He continues to direct his tanks to defend against an invasion of Calais that never happens. And within a year, Hitler's dream of world domination turns into a nightmare of defeat. And thanks, in part, to the phony story of a phony advisor with a phony name. And the, uh, the postscript on that one, Dr. Pat, is after the war, Garcia's Nazi credibility was still intact. Garbo was still thought to be a great advisor, even though, even though the invasion in Normandy, he didn't quite predict properly. Wow. Uh, and he's awarded Germany's Iron Cross that's the highest honor. Simultaneously, he's covertly knighted by the Queen of England. And as a result, he's thought to be the only person in history to be jointly honored as a hero by each opposing side in the war.
1: Wow. You know, I'm thinking about these things, and and I'm really struck by, you know, how little we know and how so many of these could have really changed the landscape of things. Right. You know, I mean, there's so many things in here that you've gone and did a lot of homework about, you know, of course, you know, we're looking at certain things that now we're trying to undo, like, you know, amalgams in our mouth, uh, and things like that. But, you know, for you, what do you think one of the most contemporary, you know, idea sure. worst ideas are if you're looking at the world and you could say to yourself right now i wish i could have put this in the book and maybe when i do part two book this will be in the book
0: well there there were quite a few uh I, and we try to not be political in the book but i thought there was quite <laughs> a few bad missteps over the past uh, four years in yeah. terms of the way we handled covid yeah uh in the ter- in terms of the way we we challenged the election results and things yep. like that but what I'd love to tell you about, and this, I don't know if this falls under the category of contemporary because it goes back to 1988. But well, it's
1: pretty contemporary. It's,
0: very, it's pretty funny. It's, it, at least it's not World War II or, or skinny dipping presidents in the 1700s. But um, we call this one how to lip sync a music career and <laughs> sync is S-I-N-K. Um, so the bad idea here is to create a pop music group led by two singers who cannot sing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the genius behind this, as we say, Frank Farian, who is a uber successful German music producer. And as I say, this goes back to 1988. So Farian is looking for the next big thing in music. And he's scouring the, uh, the 1980s Berlin club scene. And he happens upon models, male models, Fabrice Morvan and Rob Pilatus tearing up the dance floor. And to, to most onlookers, they're really uh, no more than hunky, prancing, uh, boy toys. But the to Farian, they're the ideal front men for a new band. And soon the pop group Millie Vanilli is born. One problem, as I stated earlier, neither Rob nor Fab can sing. Uh, so to cover that rather glaring deficiency, uh, Farian secretly hires professional vocalists to record all Millie Vanilli songs. And he directs Rob and Fab to lip sync to these recordings whenever they're performing live. So Millie Vanilli takes off like a hip-hopping missile. And then just as quickly, the missile crashes. At a 1989 MTV Live concert, Rob and Fab are lip syncing and gyrating to their monster hit Girl, You Know It's True, uh, when the recording skips. Forcing them to repeat the same line of the song over and over, it was "girl, you know it, girl, you know it, girl, you know it," uh, and the Milli Vanilli fraud is exposed. So, outraged fans demand that the uh, the, the musical imposters be strung up by their dreadlocks. Dozens <laughs> of lawsuits follow. Uh, Arista Records breaks their uh, recording contract. The band's new best uh, new artist uh, Grammy award is returned in shame, and their short-lived careers. In disarray, FAB slips into obscurity and sadly Rob dies of a drug overdose in 1998. But this whole lip syncing thing, uh, based on the Milli Vanilli debacle, has become a pretty hot topic these days with, with uh, critics and fans uh, excoriating everybody from Britney. I call these the three Bs, Britney, Bieber, and Beyonce. If you think I'm a fake singing live performance, and when you think about it, Dr. Pat, if you're going to pay the kind of money that it costs, these days to go to a concert, wouldn't it be nice if they were actually performing
1: at that moment? And I think that fans are really now more in tune with that than they've ever been. I think, you know, we've gone through the plastic nature of things, and now we've gone through the digital nature of things. And we are really, as fans, let's call ourselves fans if we could, we're pretty demanding now. We want to see real entertainment. You know, we're going to download your song from here. You're dropping an album and we're downloading it from here. And you know, But when it comes mm-hmm. to real entertainment, especially now, people are not really, hmm, how should I say? They're a little bit impatient and they really want to see the artistry of things now. You know, I, I got to give a shout out to Pink. She never wavered. You go to a Pink yes. concert, you watch Pink and oh my God, you know. Um,
0: well, she's doing, a, she's doing that Cirque du Soleil thing. She's oh, up in the rafters. She's yeah. hanging off wires. She's singing live. It's, a, it's quite a performance.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I, want, I wonder, so let me give you, I know we've got to end this interview and I want to thank you for it. Um, there are a couple of blunders mm-hmm. I'm seeing now and I just wonder about them. Can we just talk blunders perhaps that will make your next book?
0: Oh, gosh. Sure. Uh, you know, we did some research uh, and I think this will almost certainly make uh, the next book. the I guess what would be the next 100, the, the other 100 <laughs> of the worst ideas in history. But I really like uh, the story of New Coke, if I can get into that. Sure. Uh, this is Coca-Cola. Yeah. Um, and we say New Coke's uh What we I've already drafted this one out, but New Coke's product launch goes from fizzy to flat, and the idea here is to change the flavor formula of the most popular soft drink on Earth. Mm. And uh, the geniuses here are the senior executives of Coca Cola Company, right? Back in 1985, so we're in the uh, bubbly affluence, as we say, of the uh, post World War II America, and Coke is the Cola preferred by 60% uh, of the market. Yet by uh, 1983, I believe, uh, this pesky rival named Pepsi uh, has begun to outsell Coke among the uh, the coveted youth uh, audience. So uh, Coke's market share sinks to 24% down from 60. Uh, so their, their CEO, dude named uh, Roberto Goizeta, uh, orders a rethinking of the company's operations at the to bottom. Even Coke's century secret formula is reevaluated. So despite uh, a generation long reign as, as the world's uh, top selling soft drink, uh, it's a bastion of cool headed product stability, as we like to say, it's now sweating in the heat of competition. It's ready to change its taste. All yeah. Time. So researchers uh, fan out across America. And they're armed with trial samples of New Coke. It's a slightly sweeter, more Pepsi-like take on the soda's traditional flavor. and blind taste as consumers choose New Coke over both <laughs> traditional Coke and Pepsi by wide margins. Yet when they do focus groups, where you get more qualitative data, uh, not uh, not Coke too enthusiastic, but still Coke management doesn't care. They're thirsty for a winner, as we say, and they launched the new taste of Coca-Cola to mark the centennial of Coca-Cola in 1985. It been around for 100 years at that point. Wow! So public reaction immediately comes from Fizzy the Flat. Uh, within days, the company receives 400,000 distraught calls and angry letters. A psychiatrist is brought in uh, to evaluate the tenor of the consumer calls. And he, th- he says that they sound like people mourning the death of a loved one. Uh, even Fidel Castro says, there's another example of American decadence. Mm-hmm. So with boycotts looming just three months after its historic birth, New Coke is history. And the postscript on that one, to it after just three months, after hundreds of millions of dollars invested in research, development, and marketing, uh, they simply had underestimated the deep and abiding emotional attachment, as they said, to the original Coke. Uh, and, and some conspiracy theorists, uh, and, and they brought back then uh, the original Coke and, and, uh, and basically named it Coca-Cola Classic. And some conspiracy buffs. That This was nothing more than a ploy all along to boost the sales of uh, original Coke or Coke Classic, to which uh, CEO Robert Goizet said, we are neither smart enough nor stupid enough to have come up with that plan.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you know, I love some of these. And, you know, yet what I love about some of these is like the what if. You know, the what if factor mm-hmm. in so many of them. You know, here's sure. one for your next book. I work for at and yep. but I work for Bell Labs. And I worked uh. as a clerk. I'm one of these, I work my way up. But I worked in an organization where my boss had access. So I remember sitting at my desk and my boss bringing in this large thing that looked like one of the first Apple monitors, right? You know, it was very, sure. very large and brought it in. And mm-hmm. and I talked to my boss and I said, wow, this is really cool. Now, this is in the 60s and sev- early 70s. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. when you have something that looks like that before you actually have anything that looks like that, and I brought it in and, I, and, and I, my boss said, well, what do you think of this? This is a picture phone and this is oh, Bell Labs okay. now. And I said, wow, uh-huh. that's cool. What are you going to do with that? And he said, well, this is instead of your phone, you're going to be able to see people. And the first picture phone, 1970, from Bell Labs. And I said to him, my gosh, that's the coolest thing. He said, we're not really going to implement it. And I said, why? The board and the executives are all men. Their take is women would not want to be seen in their pajamas. Now, they don't know anything about women, but women that could chat on a picture phone face-to-face. I think that to me... That is uh, how Bell Labs and the phone company lost close to a half a billion or more, even though they'd have to go on cable that wasn't invented. Can you imagine what would have happened if they would have stayed with that and taken that? Now, I'm talking about the 70s, right? But that's one of them. Here's one I want to leave you with. Sure. The 2020 Olympic US across the board blunder. Not having every single athlete have their own personal human performance and mental coach. Uh Not supplying that team substitutes for their parents. Not Mm. having people Mm -hmm. that can coach them on their mental fitness. And we're seeing it across the board. Simone Biles, Mm. Ledecky, we're seeing it across the board at what's happening. And you have to ask yourself the question, what if... They would have looked at the pressure of a COVID Olympics, athletes that have never been away from their support system and their families, and what the impact is on a Simone Biles, who literally is carrying the weight of the world, who had to take herself out because she couldn't mentally see herself in the exercise. I think that is a blunder that we're going to see more of as we move forward. You know, it's not really looking at what these athletes were going to face what were they, were they what think, what they were going to face and not doing something about it as the United States of America
0: yeah i think so often in athletics in particular but i i'm sure it's true in business too is uh Particularly in athletics, we look at the physical training of an athlete and we concentrate on giving them the facilities and the uh, nutritional advice and the uh, when to work out, what weights to use, uh, how to stretch, all that uh, type of stuff. How often, though, do we really look at the mental side of things? And as I get older in my life, particularly in athletics, but again, I think it applies to many Areas of life. If you don't have the psychological part of it together, yeah. if you don't have the mental uh, acuity, strength, resilience, uh, foresight, whatever you want to call it. Uh, then that is at least half the equation. So we are really only training athletes for, in my estimation, half or maybe less than half of what they need in order to be successful. And I think that's what you're referring to. Yeah.
1: Can I give you a technical blunder, which I don't know it is? So I'm going to say right out of the gate, I'm not like I don't. You have to fact check uh-huh. this for me. Sure. Technical blunder. Microsoft buys mm-hmm. Skype yes. and doesn't take it to the level of video interface. Oopsie. And Zoom does. Here's Zoom.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> that's got to be in well, your sure. book. That has got to be in your next book.
0: <laughs> that's, that is a good one. Um, and also, uh, Time Warner acquiring AOL oh. at some point. That was, <laughs> that was not that. great. Uh, that's one for the, for the book as well. I'd have to research that a little bit further to, to know for sure. But if you go back even further, I mean, Bill Gates and Microsoft were given pretty much a, a free path to success when IBM decided to, that they weren't interested in software. The future was hardware. Yeah. Computer hardware was was the way of the future, IBM believed. And they said, OK, you, you, little Bill, you can go and do whatever you want with the software. Just go ahead. Uh, and then he Soon eclipsed his company. Soon eclipsed IBM. Yeah, which you could argue is out of the computer business and now basically into the business consulting business because yeah. of that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, look so many we can talk about. And I know that you try so hard to stay away from, you know, from these particular political blunders. But my friend said to just talk to you in this short interview and say, hey, what do you think of them not repealing the filibuster thing? And my friend's like, what do you think will be the blunder? Of the this four year administration and the filibuster, and I'm not I'm gonna not I'm not gonna have you answer that. I know it's kind of like a politically hot, but my friends yeah, like so that has got to be the blunder of blunders.
0: Oh yeah, well, I'll, throw in the, <laughs> I'll throw in the electoral college not being oh a second oh. time too.
1: That's got to be I'll the blunder of the century. That,
0: that well, the blunder of of the of the origins of America, you would say, because exact- that there was written wow, into yeah. the. Uh, written into the Constitution way back when and uh, my gosh I mean it was designed to I, I get it it was well intended but uh, I don't think anybody saw the consequences that could arise from it uh, later on where it was always there to protect the few against the tyranny of the many but now it's the tyranny of the few against the many yep and uh, and that's you know that's what happened so yeah a lot of stuff a lot of a lot of bad ideas are still floating around so I guess it's time for me to start writing the uh, more yeah. of the yeah. one 100 Worst Ideas in History.
1: Yeah, I think you should. And Michael, thank you so much for writing this because it really gets you to think. And that's really what we've been talking about today. I mean, this is really getting us to think. And some of these I'm just completely fascinated by. And I love the way you wrote the book. I mean, I was especially drawn to the way that you separated these ideas. Stinking thinking from air, land and sea. And, you know, I'm just so in (laughs) awe about how you found some of these things and what they mean. Just a so, lot of Yeah, well,
0: you know, we went to a crazy place that some people might have heard of, <laughs> called a library.
1: Oh I'm my like, God! If yes, your listeners <laughs> are
0: familiar with this building, where it's very quiet. There's books. Yeah, uh, but that we, we spent a lot of time in yeah. traditional libraries and online for three years, and, and that's the result.
1: And we haven't even talked about what I think is one of the greatest atrocities we still have, and that is when you took when you talked about 1939 and the Swiss chemist Paul Mueller uh, creating oh, D- yeah. DDT. I mean, that is something oh, we just still have not really gotten uh, our minds wrapped around as it is being yeah. used in some countries.
0: We call it the pesticide that commits homicide.
1: Oh, it, I it's like really that.
0: really what it ends up doing. It kills a whole bunch of people. And all of us, I won't go through the whole story, but all of us still have trace elements of DDT Absolutely. In, our, in our bodies. And it, who knows what it's done to us from a mental health and physical health standpoint after all these years.
1: Well, look at. I'm gonna let's leave everybody with this. There's a scene from The Godfather. I don't know which Godfather. I think it's Godfather 2. And I grew up in a Mediterranean family. And so this is a scene yeah. from my grandfather who came over here, who was a farmer, and grew some farms right there in the Bronx, had his own little shack and like the farm mm. thing, like in these mm-hmm. little beds. And there's a sure. scene from The Godfather, if you remember it, you know where Marlon uh, Brando puts the orange or whatever the heck he has in his mouth, and he's right. running around at the kid, but he's holding right. a can, mm-hmm. yes. and it's a spray can. It's a pesticide. It's kind. a pesticide can. And Mm -hmm. those of us that remember that is many of our grandfathers had that can of DDT and lived Mm. and breathed by it.
0: Yeah, and not to put too fine a point on that story, but uh, doesn't that character drop dead <laughs> right after? <laughs> he right drops after dead
1: right there. <laughs> he does. He there you that. go. I GDT forgot about work. that. <laughs> he
0: does. Drop at work.
1: <laughs> he drops dead with the can in his hand. Oh boy, that's the a message.
0: He's spraying the can, the little kid sprays it <laughs> on him after he falls down. Oh. uh my gosh there's no clearer indication of what DDT does than that movie
1: oh my gosh michael what's your personal message what do you want to leave us with and again tell folks how to get a copy of the book we didn't even touch some of these but please tell folks oh there's
0: there's uh i think there's probably 93 others that we haven't even i yeah. <laughs> uh, gotten to I, I, I guess uh you know what my uh, father always used to say is hey can you take 30 more seconds of thought before you do something And often that's all it takes is 30 seconds of, gee, should I or shouldn't I do this thing, this idea I have in my head, should I execute on it or not? And I would say in many, many, many of the cases in the book, if people had just stopped and thought just a little bit longer, they would have maybe arrived at a different uh, course of action based on their ideas. So that's what that's my advice to to your uh, listening audience there. And in terms of the book, we can get it at Amazon.com Barnes and Noble. Uh, Many Fine Retailers, uh, the audiobook, Audible.com, Amazon, and iTunes, or
1: 100worstideas.com. And how do people find out more about you? Uh,
0: You can uh, find out all about me on 100worstideas.com. There's a bio section to that website. Uh, Also, uh, some of the reviews we've gotten uh, are there, as well as some interviews we've done on TV and radio and other places. So, yeah, I think that's a good place to, to learn about me. There's also a 100 Worst Ideas Facebook page and cool. Instagram, and you know what all the kids uh, look at and, and care about these days.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to see that picture phone in there, and I can give you the skinny behind it. <laughs> the skinny oh, that nobody, the skinny that nobody knows, right? Oh, please, women that would, great, would not want to be seen in their bathrobes. That was the most intelligent decision a board of directors could possibly make. Yeah, All they needed not, to do was ask us.
0: not only not only sexist, but <laughs> oh lazy God. and stupid on top of it.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. yeah. And I could go on and talk to you a little bit even more about my role at Bell Labs and then asking me about caller ID. when the board oh. asked me about caller ID. Because they didn't think wow. caller ID was a good idea, because women wouldn't want their numbers to be seen. And I said to them, "Are you kidding? Absolutely, yeah, we, want this, our, we want we want to know who's women." It's women a lot. You got to remember what year this was. This was the year of <laughs> right. we think we know women. The world has changed.
0: Yes. Yeah. It has. I Uh, still don't. Better, I would hope.
1: Uh, Yeah. I. I I just never got pointy high heels. Make sure you put that in your book. Who the heck came up with the pointy high heel stiletto?
0: Pointy, pointy high heel. Well, certainly a guy. Certainly. Uh, But we do have. (laughs) <laughs> we do have uh, fashion frock-ups, as we call it in the book. And you do. I love the, it. Among it is wooden shoes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. Wooden shoes. Uh, the uh, the clip-on tie, uh, the toupee. Uh, there's all kinds. Of, the corset. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in there that... Uh, yeah, we have pictures of and get into a little bit. Yeah, so it's fun. It's fun for the whole. It's family fun,
1: stuff. and I want to leave you with this. One of the worst yes. ideas I think in mm-hmm. the comic book Marvel franchise. Are you ready for it? Yeah, got to be the sure. worst. I, I think mm-hmm. we're all okay with you know Captain Marvel. This, I mean, with um you know Captain America dis- disappearing. I don't know, like he got old and then there he went. I think we were cool with that. Um sure. I think we even were cool with you know Brie Larson playing Captain Marvel. You know, and of course, they're going to reprise that role. But I think we are Mm -hmm. going to be very unforgiving about killing off Black Widow and then doing a movie, a blockbuster movie about Black Widow. Because (laughs) who does not love Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, Marvel Blunder?
0: Yeah, it's kind of out of sequence (laughs) there to kill somebody and then have a movie afterwards Uh, as if they're still alive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank Hollywood you so much with
0: bad ideas yeah
1: ho- <laughs> that one happens to be making a lot of money that uh, black widow yeah. movie it's one of my favorite. thank you so much for cool. everything you're doing. thank you all right keeping us laughing everybody. this is our good news interview Michael Smith a hundred of the worst ideas in history he's already writing the third book second book all the books. We'll see you in a minute everybody. We'll be right back.